Welcome, everyone, to a bonus episode of Lighthearted. My name is Anna. And my name is Bracey. And on today's episode, part two of our body image topic this week, we have a super special guest. She is one of our absolute favorite people on the planet. She is part of our Ladies Night crew. Her name is Julia Catherine Baker, and she is currently residing in Miami, Florida, as a registered dietitian, and she is smart and funny and single, and... And she loves Ariana Grande. So true. That's the most important thing you could ever know about Julia. (laughs) Absolutely. So we are so excited to have her on today to hear her perspective on all things body image. Welcome, Julia. We're happy to have you. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Excited that you guys invited me on and excited to share a little bit about what I do and how I came to this job. Well, why don't you go for it? Okay. So I'm currently a registered dietitian at a residential eating disorder clinic in Miami, and I'm working with clients who have a full spectrum of eating disorders. So clients with anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, OSFED, which it's an acronym for other specified feeding and eating disorders. So it kind of captures all of those other eating disorders that are in between the more common diagnoses. Um, and ARFID, which is avoidant or restrictive food intake disorder. Um, we see a lot less of that. It's more common among adolescents. And I'm working with adults, um, which at my center usually includes people 18 to 30, although we do have some people who range from like 30 to 60. Are there specific clinics that are for like older adults that are like over 60 or would all adults come to y'all? All adults come to our type of center. There are eating disorder clinics for adolescents specifically. So anyone under 18, they're treated a little differently than adults would be. And their parents are well, their whole families are actively involved in their recovery um, in a different way that they are when you're an adult and have an eating disorder. So for example, at an adolescent clinic, therapists have to work more closely with parents, whereas at an adult clinic, you might have one family therapy session per week. Do you find that eating disorders are more common with people maybe of our generation and less so of like our parents' generation? That's a great question. The short answer is no, because eating disorders um, were passed off for older generations as just this is how we eat. um, And women are expected to eat less and not be so concerned with food. So eating disorders were just seen as this is how we live. Whereas now I think people are bringing more attention to disordered eating and seeing how eating disorders affect people's day-to-day living and paying more attention to it. So I think more people get diagnosed now than they ever have, but I don't think that there's been a difference in the number of eating disorders. And I'm just talking about probably in the past 100 years, maybe before that there is less eating disorders. But I would say in recent times, I would say our, our moms and our grandmother's generation struggled with eating disorders in the same way that our generation does. How did you get into this work? So I got into eating disorders um, through a roundabout way, actually. Um, In my second year of grad school, I interned with the UNC sports dietitian, and she focused 
with athletes on anti-diet and health at every size and intuitive eating. And I learned about those paradigms through working with her. And I learned that in eating disorder clinics, that's where you'll see these paradigms used. And so I realized that this is what I was passionate about was teaching people about intuitive eating and teaching people how to respect their bodies. And I realized that working with clients with eating disorders would be the best place to utilize those skills. Can you tell us what intuitive eating is? Intuitive eating comes from a book written by Evelyn Tribble and Elise Rich. And so they wrote a book in the 1980s when diets were first becoming popular that was counter to those diets and offered a different perspective. So intuitive eating is a paradigm that includes 10 principles of how to get back to how we were born eating. So every human is born an intuitive eater. And we, because of the culture that we live in, we get far away from what that is. And so this book offers principles and ideas and ways to live that get us back to how we were born eating. So it's kind of just like any other type of conditioning. Like we knew what to do when we came into the world and then society Mm -hmm. gently nudges us in a direction (laughs) that we shouldn't be going in. Exactly. Yeah. (laughs) That makes me think of... Uh, the clean plate club. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That that's something it's, that our society t- tells us is a good thing. And to just eat until your plate is empty, but that might not be actually what is right for your body. Yeah. It's interesting that you guys bring this up because I led two nutrition groups today and we talked about the fourth principle of intuitive eating, which is challenge the food police. So basically the food police is this concept of all of the food rules that you've either absorbed Um, in childhood or have been taught by parents or taught at school. So these food beliefs like I have to clean my plate and that's how I have to eat. Or conversely, I can only eat half of my plate. I have to leave something behind. So these rules that we are just taught, um, they become the way that we think. And um, for a lot of these clients, they're so deeply ingrained that it takes a lot of work to bring awareness to the food police and call them out and create a new system of thinking about how to eat. That's so interesting. Can you tell us about what the most common eating disorder is and maybe what you see as the cause of, is there like any baseline reason that people come in and have these issues? So I would say outside of a clinic, because in clinics, it's really hard. I feel like a lot of eating disorders start to overlap. So the difference between treating eating disorders now and 20 years ago is the advent of social media. And um, because of that, orthorexia is most commonly seen. Mm. And that can be for individuals who have anorexia, who have bulimia, they also can have orthorexic thoughts. So orthorexia is defined as people who kind of want to be quote unquote, clean eaters, people who have these rules about what is the healthiest way for them to live. So I feel that in how we've, as a society, tried to strive for healthiness that has kind of contributed to orthorexic thoughts. And instead of actually becoming healthy, we kind of create disordered individuals. People with orthorexia tend to overexercise too. Is that right? Yes, correct. So all of these things, their behaviors are in the name of health. Like they're trying to become healthier and in doing so kind of go down this spiral of they take it a little too far. So for example, They might start as someone who doesn't enjoy exercise or who doesn't move as frequently as they might want to. And 
they're trying to make a small change. And if they have kind of the brain chemistry that will, that makes them susceptible to eating disorders, then something like trying to start to exercise more becomes exercising excessively. And that goes for food. So trying to be a little bit quote unquote healthier turns into cutting out this food and only eating food that's labeled as good. And that's where all of these other terms come into like people who are interested only in eating organic or only eating quote unquote natural foods. I can imagine that that is really hard to undo or to contradict because our society does tell us like what is eating clean and being healthy. Like there's not anything wrong with that. And so I can imagine it's hard to convince people that they're taking it too far to a point where it's unhealthy. Oh, a hundred percent. That's exactly the problem is that they're like, well, this is what my, my intention was to pursue health. It wasn't to lose weight. It wasn't to get to this place of, of being in treatment. And I think that's hardest for them. Also, the people who struggle with these thoughts is they've heard so many messages about this is what you can do to eat healthier. And then they come to us and we're like, no, we're trying to get you back to where you were when you were a baby and you didn't have these labels of healthy and unhealthy and you could pick out what you were craving and you could stop eating when you were done and start eating when you were hungry. I, we just don't talk about food in those terms. We always talk about making the healthier choices. And I think a lot of that has to do with one, what's taught in schools, what our parents know. Parents are often well-intentioned, but they exist in the same culture we do. So they're teaching us messages that may lead to these problems later on. And messages that they think are right also. Like when you mentioned schools, since I work in schools, I immediately like, like I can see these posters in the lunchroom that are like have like a smiley face on a vegetable and mm-hmm. a smiley face on an apple and like but it's interesting too because I feel like the those are the messages, but then also the foods that are served in most cafeterias. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't consider healthy necessarily. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, right. And the thinking about schools we also think about food access and how quote unquote healthy food is less accessible to a lot of populations that are either low income or just further away from um, busy cities and metropolises. And so one part of this movement, the anti-diet and health at every size movement that I really was attracted to when I was studying public health is that it also addresses food access and how when we label foods as good, we also inherently label the people who eat them as good and vice versa. So when we label foods mm-hmm. as bad, we are therefore insinuating people who eat those foods are bad. And if you think about it, those less expensive foods that we label as bad, like the processed foods and manufactured foods, who can afford those? And why are we saying that they're bad? Is it because of the nutrient content or is it because we are subconsciously placing this group of people in a less than category and an other category. So I think that this paradigm really calls into question, like, why are we calling certain things healthy? Why are we calling certain foods good and bad? Um, And that's what, frankly, a lot of my clients really connect with and what's able to pull them out of their disorders when their values align or disalign with what they've been doing. um, And they want to challenge those beliefs and notions that the way you are eating defines how you are as a person. I'm not sure how to phrase this, but given that I, well, I'll just be honest. I have always associated processed foods with being bad. So can you just speak to that a little bit? This is a good question. So, and also something we talked about in my group today with challenging the food police is that, and something that my clients 
take a long time to learn as well is that all food when broken down is just chemical. It's just different chemicals, right? And our bodies can handle, know how to handle it. Our bodies have all of the mechanisms to digest all the foods similarly. And of course, when it comes to different macronutrients, like carbohydrates, protein, and fats, those are all digested differently, but your body is not going to know the difference between a bread from one distributor versus a bread from a bakery. It's really not going to know the difference. And when you eat intuitively too, you start to crave a variety of foods. So you can crave a piece of cake. And after you have that cake, because you've given yourself permission to eat it, you're probably going to crave something salty just because of how we're programmed as human beings. And so that's what I also find fascinating about intuitive eating is just how naturally our bodies crave the things that we need in that moment and over time too. So a lot of the science shows that intuitive eating gets people to a point where they are getting a variety of nutrients and it lowers the risk of health diseases later on, like heart disease, diabetes, and all of that. So I think that's the part that's I've really connected to. And one thing that my clients today made me think about is just how intertwined all of this is with social justice. And I have some clients who care so deeply about social justice that that's the reason that they're able to recover is because they're like, I might not believe this for myself right now, but I want this for the rest of the world. Like, I don't wow. want other people to be labeled as bad for choosing to eat a piece of cake. And That's so, amazing. yeah. Well, to that point that, um, yeah, you were just talking about, it's so blaming. It's like, mm-hmm. and it's just like this weird cycle of like, we're not going to give access to like, quote, healthy foods to mm-hmm. low income people. And then, we're also going to shame them for not feeding their children or mm-hmm. feeding themselves in this way that our society deems appropriate or right. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, how did, how do we expect them to ever get out of that when mm-hmm. we're oppressing them? A hundred percent. And the Hayes movement developed from that. So Hayes is, I didn't know this when I first started school and people kept throwing around the word, the acronym Hayes. And I looked up, H-A-Y-S. And I was like, "Hmm, I'm from Texas, but I've never heard about this type of haze. It's actually H-A-E-S and it's health at every size. And so basically what it says is that you can be healthy no matter what size your body is. And that doesn't mean that necessarily you are healthy in any size because some people can be in a smaller body and be unhealthy. Some people can be in a larger body and unhealthy. But the basis of it is that your size does not determine your health, your behaviors do. Um, So if you're engaging in restrictive eating or if you're binging because you restricted at another part of the day, obviously neither of those are going to be the healthiest form of you, but we're not going to blame it on your body size. I told Anna in our last episode that I got really upset when a doctor commented on my weight without having asked about my lifestyle or my diet choices. And I feel like that is exactly what you just said. Yes. Yeah. And it's really prevalent in healthcare in general. Doctors don't have, they barely get education on nutrition, let alone eating disorders. So they have no, I don't want to say no, but they have less information about how weight affects health and if it does at all. And what I've learned through my education is that weight is not a predictor of health. Can you talk a little bit about what you told us about um, uh, shame influencing health versus the actual weight of a person? Yes, I was 
thought that was a good segue from what we were talking about too, in terms of um, the social justice aspect, because what we find often is that people in black bodies tend to have higher BMIs and we tend to blame them for that instead of thinking of this might be just part of their genetic code. And another thing that affects health is if you are shaming someone for their body size, they don't want to go into the doctor's office. Who would want to go to the doctor if the doctor is just going to ask you about weight loss and not address the issue that you actually came in for? So therefore, we have people and larger bodies who are avoiding the doctor's office. And then the outcome is that they might have some health condition that's not getting treated. And then we blame that health condition on their weight instead of the stigma that they face when they're going into the doctor's office. Um, I actually had a training earlier today on that specifically about a client who came in and she was a black woman, cisgender in a larger body. And she went into a doctor's office and had, um, deep vein thrombosis, which is a pretty serious condition. And the doctor told her, if you lost weight, you'd solve that. And she ended up in a state where she almost lost her leg because the doctor didn't actually listen to her concern. Um, So you see that a lot. And it makes sense that she wouldn't want to go back to the doctor. And she hesitated to trust us at the treatment center as well. And so, Yeah, it's frustrating too to have the science behind it and be like, weight is not predicting their health. Please stop focusing on this. And yet either the information is not kind of getting to the doctors or they're choosing to believe what they've learned and not doing more research on it. So it is frustrating. And it's frustrating when you want parents or you want patients to seek out healthcare and you want them to feel comfortable into going into any office. Um, Yeah. But then they have these like negative experiences and it's like, mm -hmm. why would they? Of course, like they would dread going to the doctor or avoid going to the doctor because they don't feel like they're getting helped. Yes. And I think the concept that you're alluding to is weight stigma. And we talk a lot about weight stigma at the center too. And that concept is just the discrimination that someone faces for being in a larger body. So what that looks like is going on an airplane and not being able to comfortably sit in a seat, going anywhere and not being able to sit in a seat. So our therapists and our office in general always has couches instead of seats because we don't want anyone to feel like they don't fit into a space. Um, And so all of that, the small encounters or encounters that feel small to us are incidents of stigma that over time lead to negative health outcomes. So while we think that it may be weight causing these negative health outcomes, it's actually the stigma that we place on people who are in larger bodies that leads to the stress um, that creates these negative health outcomes. That makes total sense. Stress stress and anxiety leading to health problems. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I'm sure that y'all have probably both seen it, but there's a TED Talk by Dr. Nadine Burke-Harris about how stress in um, childhood leads to like all kinds of health outcomes. Mm -hmm. Um, If y'all haven't seen it, you should absolutely watch it. It's so interesting. Um, Yeah. But yeah, it's like, and it starts in childhood really. We see weight stigma occurring from such a young age. And we also see people feeling stress about their bodies at such a young age. And what we talked about in my group too today is these small incidents that you don't think create anxiety until you look back on them and realize that they did. 
we had one client share that she was in dance class and during her dance class, they measured everyone for costumes in front of the class, in front of the rest of the girls. And she felt such anxiety of going up there to get measured. And she didn't realize that that kind of create that contributed to her negative body image of feeling that she needed to compare herself to other people. And she said that happened at age eight. So imagine if that starts around that age and just keeps going, you keep having small incidences of having your body compared to others or having your body told that it's not good enough. By the time you get to even 25, you don't want to go to the doctor's office. You don't want to seek out help. Like, it causes well, too much we, anxiety. We talked about in our earlier episode about how like there's always going to be like some um, event or experience that happens that, makes you believe something. And then all these other situations are evidence to reinforce Mm -hmm. that that's true. You internalize things like that. And that's what I've noticed a lot about even working with clients with eating disorders is that events that may seem inconsequential to outsiders are so meaningful to them. And it just depends on what you're susceptible to. So one comment for, like you said, one comment to someone else in the class or one incident to someone else may not mean what it means to this individual. And yet it still impacted her to the point where now she has an eating disorder. So in my opinion, it makes me want to change my language for everyone because you don't know who's susceptible. So you might as well try to protect everyone. Yeah, definitely. Well, Julia, would you mind telling us a little bit about your personal relationship with health and food and your body image? Yes, I would be happy to. So it's interesting because when you become an eating disorder dietitian, I think you get asked this question quite a bit, not only by other staff members, how did you get here? Um, But clients sometimes inquire too. And the most frequent comment I get from clients is why would you do this job? Everyone, everyone with an eating disorder is going to hate the dietitian. Um, But actually, my (laughs) But actually, my relationships with all of my clients have been so meaningful, even with the most difficult clients. And they project that they hate me, but actually, it's always like a very loving and caring relationship. Do your patients ever comment on your weight or ask you about your eating habits? Yes. Clients will ask about how much I eat, how frequently I eat. To my surprise, they haven't asked if I have struggled with body image issues. Um, They haven't asked if I struggled with my relationship with food, which makes me feel happy because maybe they see that I'm confident in my relationship with food and my body. And so I feel like I'm accomplishing that goal that I've always had of being a good example of what it looks like to have an intuitive relationship with food and respect for my body. But they do ask about... if I have food rules myself. And so it helps to actually believe what I'm doing because I can answer them and say, no, I don't have food rules. And I give myself permission to eat. One question that clients ask me quite frequently is whether or not I own a scale or if I get weighed when I go to the doctor's office. So when I go to the doctor's office, I either ask not to be weighed at all or to do a backwards weight. And so I tell that to my clients and I say, I don't own a scale. I haven't known my weight for a long time. And I think that it gives them a bit of hope in that they can get to a point too where weight doesn't matter to them and weight doesn't define their value. So those type of questions come up. 
for sure. I think it's interesting that they ask those specific questions because I think as humans, sometimes we try to like solve for the right answer. Like we want one right answer. Like what is the the correct amount of times to eat per day? What is the mm-hmm. correct weight that I should weigh? And like that, it's just not that cut and dry. And I think it's hard for people to deal with that. Yes. And it's hard for people with eating disorders to live in the gray area because eating disorders want those answers more so than anyone I've ever dealt with. They want to know exactly how much do I have to eat to maintain this particular weight? Um, How much do I have to eat to be in recovery? And I think they want a straight answer of, oh, if you eat three meals and three snacks per day for the rest of your life, you will be in recovery but it just doesn't work that way. Life isn't that clear cut outside of treatment. And so a lot of our work with these clients is practicing flexibility and helping them see that perfectionism doesn't lead to the contentment that they're actually seeking out. I think in general, in anything in life, being able to let go of control and not expect a certain outcome is just so much healthier than like trying to get to a certain place or wrestle over exactly how things happen. And it's just Mm -hmm. not something that a lot of people are good at. And that would mean letting go of control. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Which is so difficult. Mm -hmm. That is a huge piece of their work with me and their therapist is I have to ask them, please let go of control. Let me hold that for you. Let me control this process for you. Because if you try to control it, you're not going to get to recovery. That's not going to happen. And so a lot of our work is just building trust so that they can let go of control. Would you say that you have always been pretty confident with your body or is that something you've learned over time? Can you tell us a little bit about your childhood and growing up with food and all that? So definitely it's not always been something that came easily to me. Um, as I was preparing for this, I kind of went through and did a little inventory of what my relationship with my body has been since childhood. Um, fortunately, when I was younger, I was really confident in my body. And of course, I noticed I had a different body than other girls, but I did have thin white privilege as a child. And so I looked pretty similar to people around me. So I'd noticed small differences, but not anything that would make me self-conscious. But I don't think I started thinking about my body until I got to high school. I started running cross-country in my junior year of high school. And anyone who runs cross-country knows you go from doing pretty much nothing to running miles and miles and miles. And when you're in high school, you just don't think about how much food you need to eat to make up for all of those miles run. Um, So I lost weight pretty quickly my junior year, and I didn't notice it until other people started making comments about it and would say, you look so different. You've lost a lot of weight. And I can remember people's moms making a lot of comments specifically about my body. And at the time, when people bring up your body to you for the first time, it makes you question, like, should I have been paying attention to my body before this point? Like, why are they why are they pointing this out? I've never thought of it. And now all of these people are thinking about it for me. And it made me so hyper-focused on everything related to my body. And I think I got to a point where I was just unhappy thinking about it so much. And by my senior year, I knew I was going to UNC. And I was like, when I get to Chapel Hill, 
not going to worry about all of these people who have made comments. It's just going to be me and my college experience. And that works kind of. Um, I got to school and most of what I was thinking about was just navigating a new city, being at school by myself, making friends. But I did always have in the back of my mind in college, like people look at my body, they do. And they'll judge me based on my body because that's the messages that I received in high school. I think it's really interesting that you just said that other people's moms would comment on your body because, you know, I know we've all talked about how really intertwined like mothers and daughters and the, the way that we think about our bodies is. I think I was less aware of it before getting to this treatment center because my mom didn't ever diet, didn't talk about her body too much when I was younger. I think as she's gotten older, she does talk about her body a little bit more, but was never, my mom never commented on my body. And so when I got to that age and I started to lose weight and other moms commented, I, it really, it really impacted me to see that it was moms in particular. And what I've learned at the center is that not only do moms how moms deal with their own bodies affect their daughters, but it affects the relationship between mother and daughter and vice versa. So when their daughters have a difficult relationship with their mom, it affects their daughter's view of their own body. But one thing I've really seen in working with these clients is that when you have moms who have dieted, when moms make comments about their own bodies, when moms make comments about other people's bodies, daughters really internalize those messages. And well, I mean, how can you as a daughter hear a mom, your mom comment on somebody else's body and not assume that she's making those same judgments about yours? You can't. You can't separate those two things. And I don't exactly. think a lot of moms think about that. I agree. And a lot of the work our clients do in family therapy is healing that relationship with their mom because witnessing that through their whole childhood had created a rift in the relationship. And I don't think a lot of moms even know that they're doing it. It's so subconscious. And so a lot of times too, it's really powerful to see how moms react when their daughters tell them like, when you dieted, it made me think less than and made me think I needed to be smaller. With this generation, we're seeing a shift in that now women are realizing like what I do personally even if I don't believe it for other people, it's going to affect how other people see themselves. Um, so I think that's true for mothers and daughters. I think it's true in friend groups of women. And why I'm so appreciative to be in a friend group that really appreciates each other for things that don't have to do with appearance, because it's so hard to have a different mindset in the society that we live in. But all of these things that we don't think about impact how we see ourselves. How would you say that your experience with your clients has impacted your own personal thoughts about your body? To my surprise, working with these clients has really solidified my relationship with my body and my relationship with food for two different reasons. One is when you're talking about intuitive eating and body respect all day and you're spending your whole day convincing others of the importance of those two things, it you can't not believe it for yourself. It's almost that I hear myself talking about it so much that I've so convinced myself of the same message. I can never see anything different for myself at this point. 
It's like um, daily affirmations almost. Mm-hmm. It is. It really is like daily affirmations. I'm like, wow, yeah, I need to respect my body for all of these reasons. Look at what I can do. I can be here and helping all of these people. And I try to be honest with them too and, and explain that body respect doesn't mean that you love your body every day and that there are some days I wake up and I may not be excited about it, but I'm always going to respect it. And I think there's also hope in that for them because when they see it's not an expectation of loving their body, but just getting to a point of respecting it and being grateful for it, they're like, okay, I can do that. I don't know if I can love my body, but I can certainly respect it. Where do you think that fits in with the body positivity movement that has been going on the last few years? So I think body respect differentiates itself from body positivity in that it's more about acceptance and not necessarily a hyper-focus on loving your body. I think body respect is more about like building a relationship with your body. And the analogy that I use with my clients is that when you're in relationship with anyone else, there are going to be times that you're frustrated with that person when you're upset. And there are going to be times when you're extremely happy and excited to be with that person. And so those things change, but you're always going to like have a sincere admiration for the other person. And that's what body love is and love for your body is, is the consistent part of it. Um, so that's how I differentiate the two. And I think body positivity can sometimes be misconstrued because the people who present themselves as body positive on our social media feeds are people with bodies that are socially acceptable and they fit the mold of the thin ideal. So it is probably easy for them to be body positive all the time. Um, I think too, with the body positive movement, it feels tricky in some ways because it's like, okay, are we always supposed to love our bodies? If I want to work out and maybe I do want to lose 10 pounds, does that mean that I'm not loving my body? Does that mean I'm not being positive about Like, is it supposed to just be like, leave your body as it is and that's what it is? Or can it be a spectrum of things? That's where I think body respect comes in is it does allow for a spectrum because if you respect your body, you're going to do the behaviors that show it respect. So if that means going to the gym for you and working out and feeling your body move, then that's body respect. And that doesn't have to do with the outward appearance of your body, which I think body positivity tends more to be like being positive about how you look and how you present. And also, like you said, kind of resigning to not changing your behaviors and resigning to being content. And I think body acceptance and body respect pushes you to want the most for your own body. Well, what would you say is the most challenging part and the most rewarding part of what you do? The most challenging part is definitely working with clients who are not interested in recovery. It can be very difficult doing sessions with them because they're so resistant. Um, There's not too much to talk about. And a lot of a lot of our sessions end up being talking about other things because they're just not ready for recovery. And I think a lot of my job has been accepting that that's not a reflection of me or my ability as a dietitian. It reflects their readiness. And I find comfort in thinking that maybe perhaps one day, one thing I said to them will 
come to the forefront of their minds. Um, and they'll be like, huh, that dietitian in Miami shared that with me. And now it means something. So I tried to turn that challenging aspect into something positive, but it can be so rough in the moment to work with someone who just does not care about recovery. That was actually going to be my next question is, I know you haven't been there a super long time, but how often patients return or um, if relapse is like the right term for that? Yeah, relapse is the right term. Um, I haven't seen any clients come back after a long period of time. I do have one client who came three years ago and is back. Um, but she wasn't my client. So I, I haven't had a re a relapse patient. Um, but I have had some clients leave treatment thinking like, I don't need this. I don't have an eating disorder. My eating disorder is not bad enough. And then a week later come back. So I've had some people do a short term turnaround of like, okay, I tried to go home for a little bit. It didn't work out. Maybe I do need this. So I've had a few of those. And I think there's some shame in that. I think they feel a lot of shame of thinking, like, I don't need this. I can do it on my own. And then they go home and try and they can't and they come back. The second time around is a lot harder for them. I think the really interesting thing about eating disorders versus um, like a different type of addiction, like gambling or alcohol, is that you literally can't operate without food. So whatever it is you're struggling with, you literally can't just cut out. It makes it so much more complicated that you're relying on the thing that you struggle with to be your sustenance for life. Yes. And we talk about that a lot too, how this is a different mental health disease is that you have to have food to survive. So how can we turn this around to incorporate something that scares you or that has complete control over you? And how do we take that control away while still keeping that thing in your life? I think that's the hardest thing to navigate is for most of these clients, food even if they're restricting, the idea of food holds so much power over them and they have to figure out a way to like relinquish that power while still feeding themselves, while still eating. So it is a really complicated relationship to navigate. I know that you have a lot of negative feelings about BMI. Would love to hear about that. And I'm also curious how does the center determine when somebody is healthy enough to leave treatment? Like, is it a, is it about their weight or, I mean, I'm sure it's more than that, but I'm sure weight is also a factor. Definitely. Especially for clients who come in and are severely underweight, even talking to these clients and you're trying to tell them that a weight is not a predictor of their health. And yet you're still needing them to gain weight to, become healthy. It's such an interesting complex to, to navigate. Um, so my thoughts on BMI. So BMI was created by a mathematician as a way to track population trends. And then at some point, the healthcare industry kind of took this scale over and decided to apply it to individuals. So we're using what was supposed to be a tool for measuring populations and now applying it to individuals. So it's very inaccurate and arbitrary. So those categories of underweight, normal weight, overweight, obese, those are all arbitrary. There's nothing that separates the edge of one category to another. It's not like people all of a sudden, as they change one decimal place, all become susceptible to diseases. So it's such arbitrary markers. In addition to that, 
insurance companies lowered those numbers so that if someone fell in an overweight or obese category, they could charge them more money for healthcare services. So it all kind of it goes back to, I would say, trying to make money. And that's a lot of what I've talked about in terms of diet culture. What it tries to do is take more of our money. Um, and so BMI is a really skewed scale for assessing someone's health. And yet it's still part of our systems. I even have to look at BMI when I'm looking at clients who come in um, and we use it for the sole purpose of telling insurance companies, this client needs more time with us. You need to give them more days. In addition to that, a lot of health at every size studies have shown that BMI has no BMI is not a causal factor for negative health outcomes. We, there might be studies that show correlation, but it's never been causation. So that's my beef with BMI. Um, <laughs> and in terms of how we decide when a client is ready to go on to the next phase, when a client leaves residential, they're not going back home right away. There's three phases of treatment. So they start with me in residential, and then the next step they would go to is partial hospitalization. And what that looks like at my center is that, um, well, during COVID, it looks a little different. It's virtual, so they're doing programming all day, but it's a little less structure. So when they're ready for that reduced structure, they move on to partial hospitalization, but they're not just thrown back into the pool right away. After partial hospitalization, they go to intensive outpatient. So that's even a little less structure. And after they've been there for a while, then they move on to living their life. But they always, even when they're done with IOP, which is the intensive outpatient, they'll always have a care team that includes a therapist, a dietitian, a psychiatrist, and of course, the primary care provider. But they always have that team to protect them from relapse and to kind of help them as they navigate what life and recovery looks like, because it is similar to having an addiction and leading a sober life is that you will always have to be mindful of triggers outside and in the real world. So it actually is more intuitive than I thought it would be to be able to determine when a client's ready to go from residential to PHP, which is partial hospitalization. Even though I've only been at this job for six months, you feel it. This client is a lot more confident in navigating their food choices. This client could order a burger and fries and be fine eating it. And this client has the knowledge of fullness and hunger. And when the client is hungry, they can respond to that hunger by having food. And when they're full, they can stop eating. And when they're enjoying a food, they can eat beyond fullness and not feel guilty about it. Um, so those are some those are some areas that I watch for to see if a client's ready to move on. Um, when they come in, we do kind of a ideal body weight range. So the range gives us the flexibility of knowing that clients have different frames and different genetics. So if, as long as they get to this range, we can kind of see, okay, this person's probably closer to what a healthy weight would look like. And then we introduce a little more intuitive eating and allowing them to respond more to cues and because when they first come in, they're on a prescribed meal plan. So they just need to eat all of the food. And when they get to a point where they're like, well, they could be reaching a healthy weight, then we start playing with their food intake, letting them respond to their cues. And then they reach this natural set point. And that doesn't always happen in residential. Sometimes that happens in partial hospitalization. But 
for the most part, we can kind of tell where their body wants to sit. It's pretty, it's pretty amazing when you start watching someone's weight shift and then it hits a stick point and it's about like, let's say like it's two to three pound range. And you're like, wow, that's pretty amazing. You can feed them a lot of food and their body still stays within the same two to three pounds. Um, because I came into this field with an interest in science, it always amazes me how complex our bodies are and how reliable they are at the same time. And if we give them a chance to be, if we stop trying to manipulate what we eat and how much we move and we just try to stay attuned to those things instead, it's amazing how regular our bodies can be. Julia, oh my gosh, thank you so much for coming on and enlightening us. This was such an interesting conversation. And you are absolutely perfect, just like we knew you would be. Thank you guys for having me on. This is my first time as a practicing dietitian being featured on a podcast, talking about my views. So I'm really grateful that you guys gave me this opportunity. All right. Well, thank you everyone for listening to this super special episode and we will be back next Monday with another episode. And if you guys want to follow along on Instagram, we are at lightheartedpod. Thanks y'all. Talk to you next week. Yada 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 yada.